Welcome to Hub History, where we go far beyond the Freedom Trail to share our favorite stories from the history of Boston, the hub of the universe. This is episode 185, Whale Watching on Washington Street. Hi, I'm Jake. This week, we're talking about a time when you could pay 20 cents to watch a captive whale swim in a custom-built aquarium on Washington Street in Boston's downtown crossing. Today, there's no SeaWorld location near Boston, and our New England Aquarium doesn't hold any whales or dolphins. Perhaps that's for the best, as we now realize how intelligent these giants of the sea are. However, times were different 160 years ago, and an entrepreneurial inventor did the impossible, bringing a beluga whale alive from the Arctic Ocean to Boston, and keeping it alive here for at least 18 months, before being betrayed by the greatest showman, P.T. Barnum himself. But before we talk about what it took to start and run a 19th century aquarium, it's time for this week's Boston Book Club selection and our upcoming historical event. My pick for the Boston Book Club this week is a documentary called Damrell's Fire that's available on Amazon Prime. It charts John Damrell's rise from a volunteer firefighter in Boston to the chief of the city's newly professional fire department. It opens with the horror of Chicago's October 1871 Great Fire and the lessons in fire prevention that Damrell learned by observing the aftermath. It also covers the political battles that prevented Damrell from implementing many of his ideas. About a year after the Chicago Fire, Damrell was forced to confront Boston's own Great Fire. On November 9, 1872, a small fire erupted in a basement in the heart of Boston's downtown commercial district. Because of flawed construction techniques that allowed fires to accelerate quickly, that small fire soon became a towering inferno of flame that was seemingly unstoppable as it swept across the city's center. While fighting the fire, Damrell also had to fight business and political leaders about whether to use gunpowder to demolish buildings in the path of the fire and which businesses to save. The Boston Fire Department was able to stop the fire, but John Damrell got fired anyway. Not, however, before he could put steps into place that would help prevent similar firestorms in other cities. This 55-minute film features documentary mainstays like historical maps, photos, engravings, and clips from early silent films. There are also interviews with fire department officials and familiar names in Boston history, like Anthony Samarco, Stephanie Shoro, and Professor Robert Allison. One of my favorite elements was a series of animations recreating 1872 Boston and showing how the fire progressed. Imagine the graphic quality of a 15-year-old low-budget video game, but despite that, they're a well-done, fairly accurate 3D rendering of the city as it existed back then. My favorite was a photo showing Old South Meeting House in Washington Street that seamlessly transitioned into an animation. And this week's show notes will include a link to the film on Amazon Prime, as well as a companion website for educators. And for our upcoming event this week, we have a virtual tour, led by Gavin Kleespies, Director of Programs, Exhibitions, and Community Partnerships at the Mass Historical Society. This Wednesday, May 20th at 5.30pm, he'll be giving a talk called Misled, a virtual tour of inaccurate historical markers. I have high hopes, because the header image for the event post is a stone marker near Mount Auburn Hospital in Cambridge that says, On this spot, in the year 1000, Leif Erikson built his house in Vineland. 
Longtime listeners may remember that way back in episode 17, we covered the common belief in late 19th century Boston that Vikings had settled the Charles River Valley. In reality, of course, a wealthy baking powder magnet simply read a bunch of books about Vikings, walked to the banks of the Charles nearest his house, kicked at a pile of stones, and said, Eureka, Leif Erikson's house. Sometimes that's all it takes to set the historical record wrong, as the description of the event explains. Historical markers influence what and who we remember, but sometimes they aren't quite what they appear. Some are just wrong. Even in a city like Cambridge, a place known worldwide as a home to rigorous scholarship, misleading and inaccurate historical markers can be found. While these markers don't always reflect the whole truth, sometimes the stories they tell offer important lessons about who gets to shape history. This virtual tour will explore Cambridge's strange patchwork of unreliable markers, including mimic houses, mislabeled trees, and even a fake rock. The online event is free, but advanced registration is required. We'll have the link you need in this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 185. Before I start the show, I just want to say thanks to our latest Patreon sponsor, William L., and all of you who've stuck with us through the COVID crisis. The entire podcast business has been hit with declining download numbers now that people aren't commuting or going to gyms, and we're no exception to that. So we're grateful to those of you who are still listening, and especially to those who still sponsor us on Patreon. We know that this is a lean time for many of you, but after you support local businesses and, of course, your favorite historic site, please consider supporting the show as well. As little as $2 a month helps us pay for web hosting and security, podcast media hosting, and the audio processing tools that make us sound so buttery smooth. On a personal note, I want to say that I've been suffering from a crippling bout of writer's block since our social distancing experiment began. Something about the added stress of working at home full-time and the background anxiety of wondering whether picking up groceries this week is going to kill me has made it impossible for me to write new scripts. Since mid-March, I've released five interview shows, three reruns, and the only new scripted show I've released was episode 177, about a well on Long Wharf. And I actually wrote that one over two years ago, and just never got around to recording it. All that is my long way to say that I'm very relieved to have finally written a new show script. So without further ado, it's time for this week's main topic. Perhaps during this coronavirus quarantine, you've been one of the millions of people charmed by YouTube videos of Wellington the Penguin, exploring the Shedd Aquarium in Chicago. With no people around, the curators allowed Wellington and his fellow rockhoppers to roam around the building and examine the other exhibits. In one video, the tiny penguin comes nose-to-nose with a white beluga whale through the glass of the beluga's tank. Belugas look like oversized white dolphins with stubby noses, but they're actually one of the smallest species of whale, native to coastal waters and the Arctic Ocean. While there are no whales or dolphins at Boston's New England Aquarium, you might be surprised to learn that Boston could once boast a beluga of her own. There was no school on George Washington's birthday, February 22, 1861. Times were tense, but the outbreak of the Civil War was still months away. For nine-year-old Sarah Gould Putnam, the bells that chimed in her window that morning heralded a day full of promise. 
In her diary, she later described how she celebrated the day with some sponge cake and some children's theater, and she finished it off with a visit to one of her favorite attractions in Boston. In the evening, I went again to the Aquarial Gardens, and there we saw the whale being driven by a girl. She was in a boat, and the whale was fastened to the boat by a pair of reins and a collar which was fastened round his neck. The men had to chase him before they could put on the collar. Surely this fanciful account of a lady in a boat being pulled by a harnessed whale must have sprung out of the imagination of a precocious little girl. Right? Well, not so fast. An honest-to-goodness grown-up wrote a description of the same show the following year, in Balu's Dollar Monthly magazine. The author describes how the proprietor had a lovely ferry boat constructed by one of our Boston boat builders in the shape of a nautilus shell. He intended to have a dolphin pull the boat, but the dolphin died before he could train it. Instead, Balu's relates, he asked himself, why not harness the whale? The question was considered, and the monster was measured for collar and traces. He took to them both kindly, and a piquant little piece having been written, the services of Neptune and Triton were enlisted, and Mademoiselle Lyon, a charming young lady of Boston, boldly entered her boat and drove the whale as deftly as if he had been the tamest of ponies. The success was at once very great, and the attraction continues unimpaired to the present time of writing. The idea of harnessing and driving a whale was a bold one. No one but a live Yankee would have dreamed of such a thing or carried it out to a successful issue. So, how did an Arctic whale end up harnessed to a novelty boat in a small glass tank on Washington Street in Boston? Well, the story starts in the early days of photography. In 1839, a French inventor publicly revealed the first practical way to create a photographic image. Using a glass plate coated with reflective silver, which was fumed with iodine vapor, a faint image could be captured, then developed into a visible photograph using mercury fumes. Named daguerreotypes in honor of its creator, this method would take the world by storm. Here in the U.S., Many photography studios opened in the 1840s using the daguerreotype system. Matthew Brady would become one of the most famous after his pictures of Civil War battlefields brought the war into people's drawing rooms for the first time. In the early 1850s, a Bostonian named James Ambrose Cutting patented a new process that used a glass plate coated with a chemical called collodion, dipped in silver nitrate, and then exposed while still wet. This new technique, soon known as an ambrotype, was cheaper to produce than a daguerreotype, while producing an image that many viewers preferred. Within a decade, its popularity was beginning to outshine its predecessor, while Mr. J.A. Cutting enjoyed the fruits of being the patent holder of a runaway success. As he read about early successful attempts in London to keep fish in glass aquariums by using plants to oxygenate the water and snails to filter it out, Cutting reportedly developed two small aquariums in 1854. This likely means that he was the first, or at least among the first, people in America to keep aquariums. The Balu's article reports that he immediately dreamed of something bigger. For some time, previous to the year 1859, Mr. James A. Cutting had revolved in his mind the idea of founding in Boston an aquarium on a grand scale. 
Until then, the collections of fishes and aquatic wonders generally had been made in small tanks and were little better than pretty scientific toys. No one had, as yet, turned the idea to practical purposes. The elegant miniature fish ponds were comparatively useless. Mr. Cutting, on being satisfied that the principle of the aquarium had been fully established, determined to develop it to its fullest extent. If he reasoned, a minnow can be kept alive and healthy in its native element, why not a monster of the deep? If a shrimp, why not a shark? Meanwhile, in New York City, a business partner of Phineas T. Barnum introduced some aquariums into Barnum's American Museum. Then he wrote an influential book in 1858 called The Family Aquarium, which may have been the first book about keeping fish at home. In it, he explained the careful balance that was required to create a successful aquarium at the time. Animal life absorbs oxygen and throws off carbonic acid gas. Vegetable life, on the contrary, absorbs carbonic acid gas and throws off oxygen. What one rejects, the other needs. What would suffocate the one if not removed, the other would die of exhaustion if it could not obtain. This is the universal compensating action of nature and applies under certain circumstances to man and a rosebud as peculiarly as it does to an ox and an oak, a trout and a water lily. An aquarium exhibits a very accurate self-adjustment of this delicate balance of vitalization and destruction. It should contain precisely enough animal to sustain vegetable life and sufficient vegetable to meet the demands of animal life. It is a very nice scale of physical equivalence. The fish, insects, and reptiles must, to thrive, consume the oxygen with which the plants impregnate the water, and they supply in return the carbonic acid gas, all of which the plants must absorb for their own growth and the water's purification. In early 1859, that partner, Henry D. Butler, teamed up with James A. Cutting to bring a new venture to the streets of Boston. Butler and Cutting brought early expertise in aquariums, and Cutting and P.T. Barnum provided the money. An advertisement in the April 5, 1859 edition of the Boston Post announced the grand opening that would come two days later. This magnificent display of one of the most fascinating phenomena of nature is nearly completed and will be open to the public on Thursday the 7th. These ocean and river observatories are the most exquisitely interesting subjects to contemplate ever yet presented to the admiring gaze of mankind by the hand of taste and refinement. They present us with a perfect and striking illustration of life beneath the waters. Located at first at 21 Bromfield Street in downtown Crossing, Cutting and Butler named their venture the Boston Aquarial Gardens. It was directly across the street from the ancient Province House, which was the ceremonial home of Massachusetts governors from 1679 to 1864, before being torn down in 1922. Inside the aquarial gardens, the main exhibits were housed in a round room, under a high-domed roof with plenty of windows to let in the light. An engraving in the collection of the Boston Athenaeum shows a series of tanks arranged on tables in a circle around the room. In the center of the circle stood a larger octagonal tank. With the possible exception of that central tank, none of them would be considered especially impressive by the average home aquarium keeper today. But of course, at the time, nobody'd seen anything like it before. A slightly later advertisement describes what a visitor could expect to see. 
The aquaria consists of fresh and saltwater crystal ponds, varying in capacity from 20 to 100 gallons. These ponds are enclosed in plate glass. They are perfectly translucent, and being artificially furnished with rocks, sand, etc., with varieties of seaweed, afford a vivid representation of the bottom of the sea. Here, therefore, we can have in their natural element and conditions every variety of living marine and freshwater fish, mollusks, zoophytes, and plants. The scene is at once wonderful and intensely beautiful. Hours of delight may be spent in watching the habits of the animals seizing and devouring their prey and disporting themselves as freely as if they were still enjoying their full freedom in the ocean or river where they first saw life. In his book on the history of Boston Aquariums, Jerry Ryan describes the significance of the aquarial gardens. What Cutting and Butler founded on Bromfield Street was the first recorded aquarium that was not part of something else. The aquarial gardens were first, foremost, and exclusively dedicated to the appreciation of marine life and the education of the public. And in this lies their uniqueness. Though it seems odd to say so now, the aquarial gardens were at the forefront of technology at the time. One of the most important breakthroughs was the creation of mechanical aerators, which used steam power to pump air to the bottoms of the tanks. As the bubbles then rose, they provided oxygen for the fish. With aeration, the water could be oxygenated without the use of plants. No plants meant no place for the fish to hide, so visitors could be sure to see the fish in every tank. And those visitors could expect to see a dazzling selection of specimens. In a listing of the garden's holdings from July of 1860, the collection included sea anemones and fresh coral starfish and sea urchins, as well as horseshoe, king, and hermit crabs. There were freshwater sunfish and crawdads, perch, shiners, and carp. In the salt tanks were snappers, turtles, eels, sticklebacks, and a variety of colorful reef fish. In slightly drier cages were alligators, monitor lizards, boas, and pythons. Soon, a kangaroo would join the company as well. Starting in the summer of 1860, the first of what would turn out to be many exhibits of questionable scientific value went on display. The learned seals Ned and Fanny were trained to perform a number of tricks. A pamphlet published by the Aquarial Gardens describes some of the highlights. One of Fanny's performances amuses everyone who sees it. She will lie upon her back, meekly fold her hands, meaning of course her flippers, upon her bosom, and will feign sleep and snore with the energy of the most inveterate night trumpeter of the human family. This is perhaps the most remarkable, as well as amusing, of her many pleasing performances, displaying a power of mimicry in a direction contrary to her nature that is really marvelous. She seems to delight in the performance of this, as though she thoroughly comprehended and appreciated the joke she's playing on her visitors. Ned had a different set of tricks up his sleeve. First, he shows his visitors with much latent drollery how he wakes himself in the morning and makes his exodus from dreamland into this matter-of-fact world. Next, he takes his bath, thereby conveying to the spectators the lesson that a matutinal plunge is a very wholesome and proper performance. If Mr. Cutting intimates to him that this cleaning exercise has been somewhat hurriedly and imperfectly performed, Ned makes no scruple about repeating it, and this time, he goes under with a will. 
Next, he assumes a graver and more aspiring character, and Mr. Cutting having handed him a rifle or gun, Ned shoulders arms, instanter, and with all the gravity of a member of the governor's bodyguard, or the comicality of a Massachusetts farmer on training day. But passing over his other performances, we may mention one other, and that one the most marvelous. We refer to his playing upon the hand organ, which he has learned to do with perfect ease and wonderful adroitness, even to the changing of hands when one of them is wearied with the exercise. It is to this performance that we have alluded as being his favorite one. Whether it's the revolving motion of the handle, or that he has a greater passion for that class of music than most human householders have, we pretend not to decide. But we're sure that he takes pleasure in it from the fact that if the organ is left upon his platform, he'll play upon it from choice in the night as well as in the daytime. As the collection grew, and the public demanded more dynamic and entertaining exhibits like the Learned Seals, the Aquarial Gardens quickly outgrew their space on Bromfield. At the same time, Cutting became fixated on the possibility of displaying a living whale, something nobody in the world had been able to do up to that point, not even P.T. Barnum. In the fall of 1860, the gardens moved a few blocks away to the Central Court on Washington Street. It's the current location of the Lafayette Mall, behind Macy's. Jerry Ryan's book described the new structure, which Cutting and Butler had purpose-built for the aquarium. The architect's plan for the Central Court Gardens building, which was expressly designed to house the aquarial garden, and thus holds the distinction of being the first aquarium designed as such, is strikingly similar to the actual Hutchinson Building on the corner of Bromfield and Province Streets. Although only two stories high, it presents a relatively narrow facade and is of considerable length. Here, too, high-arched windows define the building's appearance. Since it was built on a slope, it would appear to be of a single story when approached from the front. A lateral view shows stairs leading down to a lower level of considerable proportions. From the street, one entered directly into the aquarial section on the upper level, where the ticket office was located. The article in Balu's magazine adds, A more complete and commodious structure for a special purpose cannot anywhere be found. The building is divided into an upper and a lower hall, and the former of which is a deep gallery, and connected with it a spacious stage on which occasional scientific lectures are delivered and scientific exhibitions conducted. In the lower hall is a splendid collection of fine, living zoological specimens and a ring for the performance of trained animals. On entering the main hall, the object which first strikes the eye and elicits the wonder and admiration of the visitor is the great central tank. This magnificent reservoir, or miniature ocean, as it has been not inaptly called, is a perfect triumph of aquarial architecture. The central tank is described as being 6 feet deep and 30 feet in diameter. Again, not impressive compared to the giant ocean tank at today's New England Aquarium, but completely unprecedented in the United States in 1860. The enormous water pressure was contained by 18 panes of inch-thick plate glass that have been special ordered from Europe. Ballou's magazine describes the next great technological marvel that was pressed into service to support the aquarial gardens. To fill this huge receptacle with fresh water would have been easy enough. But as Mr. Cutting intended to place a whale in it, 
And as whales do not generally live in constituent fluid, it became necessary to devise some means not only of furnishing the tank with salt water, but of procuring a constant supply of the briny element. Central Court is situated three-quarters of a mile from Boston Harbor at the nearest available point. It was certain that the whale could not be taken thither to enjoy his daily change of fluid. Therefore, it was decided, as Muhammad could not go to the mountain, the mountain should come to Muhammad. To speak without trope or metaphor, as the whale could not visit the sea, the sea should rush to the residence of the whale. Freshwater could be conveyed long distances in pipes, and so then could salt water. Accordingly, iron pipes, carefully lined inside and outside with cement, were laid down under the streets, from the harbor at the foot of Summer Street to the building at Central Court, a work involving no small labor and expense, $10,000 at least having been expended on this item alone. At the harbor terminus of the pipe, a steam engine of 20 horsepower was erected to pump up the water and send it along the underground channel. Another steam engine of 12 horsepower was put up at the gardens. This ladder forces the seawater into the great reservoir on the roof, which supplies the tank and the fountains in its center. By means of these appliances, fresh seawater to the amount of 860,000 gallons passes daily through the central and smaller tanks. The New Boston Aquarial and Zoological Gardens opened on October 4, 1860. The grand opening featured a lecture by Louis Agassiz and a performance by five South Africans. These two inclusions hint at one of the darker aspects of the Aquarial Gardens. Agassiz was a famous and, at the time, well-regarded biologist. Born in Switzerland, he was recruited to Harvard and founded the school's Museum of Comparative Zoology. Agassiz would end up being the most frequent lecturer at the Aquarial Gardens, and he was also a leading proponent of theories that are now regarded as scientific racism. Under the influence of Louis Agassiz, the five South African men were exhibited in what was essentially a human zoo. Jerry Ryan wrote, The main attraction on opening day was the South African origines, attired in their native costumes, who were to perform their war and festive dances accompanied by their national songs. After giving a brief description of the southern portion of the African continent, and a sketch of the early life of each individual specimen of the nomadic tribes, the South African Aborigines, who were in fact living in Port Natal when they were recruited, and who were fluent in Dutch and English, remained at the gardens. On Sunday, April 28, 1861, things took a tragic turn. The following day, the Boston Post reported, One of the famous company of wild Africans, for a long time past on exhibition at the Aquarial Gardens Central Court, committed suicide last evening. At just 17 years old, the young man, Studman Ganges, had hanged himself in the quarters he shared with his four countrymen. He waited for them to go to a church service and ended his life while they were gone. In one final humiliation, Louis Agassiz took possession of his body and arranged for it to be put on display at the Harvard Museum of Natural History. Soon after Studman's death, the rest of his countrymen returned to Port Natal, leaving show business behind. They were replaced by a Native American family advertised as the Red Men of the Forest, Mohawk Chief Atsa Kata, who, with his wife and family, 
we'll go through several interesting Indian ceremonies. Louis Agassiz would continue consulting for the Aquarial Gardens and giving frequent lectures there for the lifetime of the institution. In hindsight, that appears to have been a mistake. It was only in the second half of the 20th century that Harvard and other institutions affiliated with Louis Agassiz finally started to wrestle with his legacy. Now, though, Cutting had his specially built aquarium. He had a large central tank, and he had almost 900,000 gallons of fresh seawater being pumped in daily. All he needed now was a whale. Today, of course, we recognize that whales of all species are highly intelligent creatures, and keeping them in captivity is increasingly seen as inhumane. Sensitive listeners may want to skip forward by a minute or two to get past the description of the capture. The white whale was Cutting's goal, and Balu's magazine relates how he intended to capture one. There is a species of whale, well known to frequent the Gulf of St. Lawrence at certain seasons of the year, for the purpose of following and feeding on the immense shoals of a small fish called the capelin that abound in those seas. These whales, in the act of catching, are often themselves caught in weirs constructed for the purpose, from which, when they once enter there, they can only with great difficulty emerge. Cutting contracted with a Canadian whaler to procure a living beluga, which had never been done successfully. An article in the Boston Atlas gives the location along the St. Lawrence where the whaler operated as between the Orel and Duluth rivers. Balou said that the whaler was amused, but he didn't believe it would be possible to keep the whale alive long enough to bring it all the way to Boston. Nevertheless, he was willing to give it the old college try. An 1879 book about ocean life by William Damon, who would later work at the Aquarial Gardens, describes the process he undertook. The difficulty of capturing a whale even 20 feet long is immense, and the expense is also great. It cannot be taken alive by pursuit, and the only successful method is to build a large trap by sinking long stakes into the mud at low tide, enclosing a space large enough for several whales, and excavating this so as to form a sort of basin. When a school of whales approach the spot at high tide, they do not perceive the shallowness of the water, and the sole chance of capturing them is that they remain sporting about over the enclosed basin until the tide is retired, when they then find themselves struggling in the mud or in water too shallow to float in easily, and they are then approached by their hunters. Now comes the tug of war. Several men enter the water and endeavor to fasten ropes around one or two of the entrapped animals. The lower the water, the more easily this is done. But generally, a very exciting struggle ensues, the whale endeavoring to escape from the barriers which surround him, and the men, in their attempts, slipping, splashing, sinking in the mud, sometimes knocked over by the plunges of the worried animal, ordering, shouting, and, I fear I must add, swearing. Finally, in a few instances, they have at last succeeded in making Leviathan captive. The Boston Atlas adds a note on the fate of the other whales caught by the same whaler that season. Fourteen have been caught within two months, which period is commonly accounted a season. All but that caught for Mr. Cutting were killed for the purpose of procuring oil, which is their only product of any value. Having succeeded in catching a living beluga in his weir, the whaler sent a telegram to Mr. Cutting, 
who brought a small army of workers and equipment to the shores of the St. Lawrence to pick up his catch. Balu's magazine then picks up the tale again. The next thing to be done was to convey him overland to Boston. In order to do this, a wooden tank rather longer than the whale and deep enough to hold him coffin-wise was made. This was partially filled and lined with seaweed, laid on its side, and about fifty men rolled the whale into it. Not, however, without his protesting against such liberty by sundry lashings of his powerful tail. Once in the box, he was well packed with weed, and placed on a truck on which he was carted twelve miles to the nearest railroad point. Here, Mr. Cutting had chartered a special engine and truck, on which latter the whale in his box was placed, and away went the train with its novel freight, now approximating to the Flying Fish, to Quebec, and from thence on the Grand Trunk Railway to Portland, Maine, and finally to Boston, where the whale, having had water thrown over him every now and then during his long journey, arrived safely and in excellent condition, being the first living whale that had ever traveled on a rail. In anticipation of the monster's arrival, a derrick had been raised over the great tank, and the wooden box being lifted to its edge, the whale was tumbled into its new residence, where it is now quite at home. The beluga whale was on display by the first week of June in 1861, and it was soon joined by a dolphin. I couldn't find a source that described the dolphin's capture in detail, but I assumed the method was similar. When Sarah Gould Putnam visited the new aquarial garden on November 21st, she described both new residents. There is a whale in a tank. The whale was about as long as two short men, and he is as white almost as snow. There is a dolphin with him, and several little fishes, and there was a fountain in the tank, which looks very prettily when it plays. We already described the spectacle of the whale pulling a boat that Sarah witnessed a few months later. William Damon describes what it was like to work with the beluga. It continued in good condition for more than a year and became so perfectly acclimated to its new home that it actually showed some signs of intelligence. There was a nautilus-shaped boat made, to which he was occasionally tackled and taught to draw. I fancy he was not very fond of being treated like a draft horse, for when we wanted him to hold up to be harnessed, he just put on speed and went all the faster around his glass-walled circle. He would, however, sometimes condescend to take a live herring or squirming eel from my hand, and then turning on one side, sail round and look up for more of the same sort. And in other ways, he would show that he was really becoming an intelligent, Americanized citizen. This creature hardly ever remained still. It appeared to always be swimming around its tank, and ever in the one direction, but varying its speed, and it seemed to find amusement in diving up and down and in splashing water with its tail which was admirably formed for the purpose, varying its performances by occasionally spouting a stream of water through its blowhole into the air. By all accounts, this first beluga lived for about 18 months in captivity. That's a depressingly short period, but eons in comparison to P.T. Barnum's rates. Down in New York, Barnum was trying to add a beluga of his own to the American Museum. In his book, Jerry Ryan wrote... Barnum, with his customary bravado, claimed to be the first to capture and exhibit a live whale, and dramatically described his Herculean feat in his autobiography. Cutting obtained his specimen prior to Barnum. Cutting's whale survived for at least 18 months. Barnum's whales were notoriously short-lived. In a letter to the New York Times, Barnum wrote, 
In August last, I succeeded in bringing to the museum two living white whales from Labrador. One died the first day, and the other the second day. Even in this brief period, thousands availed themselves of the opportunity of witnessing this rare sight. Since August, I have brought two more whales to New York at an enormous expense, but both died before I could get them into the museum. A fifth living whale has now arrived here, and will remain in the museum as long as he lives. Yet that fifth whale didn't fare much better than the first four, and soon Barnum recruited the assistance of J.A. Cutting and Boston's Aquarial Gardens, as described by Jerry Ryan. In July of 1861, the central tank became seriously crowded. Barnum loaned two of his St. Lawrence belugas to the Aquarial Gardens for two months prior to their installation in New York. There were now three living whales measuring 9, 11, and 12 feet and weighing from 800 to 1,000 pounds, thus rendering the gardens, and this particular alone, the most instructive and interesting place of amusement in the world. In all probability, this was the third pair that Barnum had captured. Having failed miserably in maintaining the first two previous pairs of belugas, it seems likely that the great showman tried to learn the technique of keeping whales alive in captivity in Boston before moving them to their final destination. P.T. Barnum seldom did anything with disinterest. When Barnum finally moved his two whales to New York, they quickly expired. Rumors say that P.T. Barnum soon owned a series of whale pens along the St. Lawrence, and he had a supply chain of whales in constant motion, so new belugas appeared in New York City every few days to replace the earlier specimens that died almost immediately upon arrival. Well, you know what they say. If you can't beat them, join them. Or in Barnum's case, if you can't beat them, initiate a hostile takeover, push out the original management, and turn the aquarial gardens into just another sideshow act. Old Phineas T. had been an investor in the aquarium since its start on Bromfield Street, but he'd been a silent partner up to this point. Jerry Ryan's book says, On May 13th of 1862... The gardens were closed for extensive improvements, a change having taken place in the management. It can be safely said that Henry Butler was Barnum's proxy, and without the presence of his agent, the great showman felt that he had lost control of the gardens, which he'd been financing. The establishment was reopened on June 16th. On the occasion, Barnum said he would use his extraordinary facilities for procuring rare novelties from nearly every portion of the globe. At the same time, he hoped to form such a happy blending of amusement with instruction as not to depend solely upon the scientific public for support, but to render this establishment attractive and popular with all respectable classes. James Cutting, who had founded the Aquarial Gardens and successfully captivated a whale, was relegated to remain at the gardens and take charge of the living whale and the musically educated seals. Under the new regime, Cutting's scientific approach to operating the aquarium went right out the window. Instead, Barnum's famous curiosities took center stage at the newly renamed Barnum Aquarial Gardens. The reopening was celebrated with a great national dog show. They were followed by an albino family from Madagascar, a glassblowing exhibition, a Connecticut giantess, a double-voiced singer, and the Grand National Baby Show. General Tom Thumb and Commodore Nutt, both circus performers with dwarfism who were employed by Barnum, would perform at the newly revamped gardens extensively in the summer and fall of 1862. 
when Tom Thumb was 24 years old and Nutt was just 14. Sally Gould Putnam visited again during this period, on a late November Saturday, and recorded this in her diary. In the afternoon, I went with Gertrude and Johnny to Barnum's Aquarials. We went in time to see Commodore Nutt, as he's called, and see a man swing on a rope and turn head over heels on it, and see a contortionist, and we heard a man sing a real funny song. And then we went down to the lower place of the aquarial gardens and saw the rhinoceros eating. And then he went down into his tank and laid down. Contented, I guess. We saw the seals, too. Of this period, Jerry Ryan noted, Barnum reigned for eight months over the aquarial gardens, which became little more than a poor parent of his American museum in New York. As promised, the rare novelties arrived thick and fast. The marine life exhibits were mere background. In the middle of all this, witnessing his dream being cheapened and destroyed, was James Cutting. One can only speculate as to what must have been going on inside this pioneer aquarist who marveled at the wonders of marine life and wanted to share this experience with others. At about the same time in November of 1862 when Sally Putnam was watching Commodore Nutt, James Cutting left the aquarial gardens and William Damon took over as chief trainer. Cutting tried to open a competing aquarium, but it failed after only two weeks. Ryan concludes, At any rate, his role in the new institution, after all that he had accomplished, must have been humiliating, as the separation from Ned and the living whale and the other fish and mammals he had nurtured must have been painful. It was a tragic ending for a gifted scientist and naturalist. Within weeks of Cutting's departure, P.T. Barnum moved all the fish tanks and aquatic displays out of the main floor, shoehorning them into the lower floor with the zoological collection. He converted the main floor to a thousand-seat vaudeville theater. In January of 1863, he put the business up for sale, and in February, he closed it abruptly, moving the remaining animals to his American museum in New York. The purpose-built aquarium building at Central Court would be used as a vaudeville theater until 1872, when it burned down in Boston's Great Fire. You can learn more about that in this week's Boston Book Club pick. Starting in June of 1863, Cutting would make one more attempt to open an aquarium in Boston. This time he partnered with Buckley Serenaders, installing fish tanks in the basement of their new minstrel hall at the Aquarial Gardens, where blackface performances were offered daily. Cutting was never able to put together a collection that attracted visitors, and the aquarium closed in October or November of 1863. James A. Cutting, the gifted inventor and dedicated naturalist, was soon confined to an insane asylum in Worcester, where he died in 1869. Bostonians would have to wait nearly a half-century to visit another aquarium. Finally, in 1912, the South Boston Aquarium opened at Marine Park and the magnificent New England Aquarium opened on Central Wharf in 1969. Let's all go visit when the pandemic's over. To learn more about the Washington Street Whale, check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 185. We'll have a link to Jerry Ryan's book about the aquarial gardens that we relied so heavily on, which was also our Boston Book Club pick a few weeks ago. We'll link to the 1862 profile of the Aquarial Gardens in Balu's Dollar Monthly magazine, to Sally Gould Putnam's diary entries about the Aquarial Gardens, and to a list of the aquarium's holdings in July of 1860 and May of 1861. 
We'll have pictures of the original Aquarial Gardens, as well as pictures of the beluga pulling a boat. There will be links to the book about the learned seals, and the books written by Butler and Damon. We'll have depressing news coverage of the early attempts to captivate a beluga by Barnum and Cutting, as well as a modern account of an offshore sanctuary in Iceland, where captive belugas are gradually reintroduced to the wild. And of course, we'll have links to information about our upcoming event, and Damrell's Fire, this week's Boston Book Club pick. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at podcast at hubhistory.com. We're Hub History on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Or you can go to hubhistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. While you're on the site, hit the subscribe link and be sure that you never miss an episode. We're in all your favorite podcast apps, including Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Pocket Casts, TuneIn Radio, Player FM, and many more. Stream the show every Sunday night at 8 p.m. on bostonfreeradio.com. You can also listen on your favorite smart speaker. If you have an Amazon Echo, just say, Alexa, play the Hub History podcast. Or if you have a Google Home, you can say, Hey Google, play the Hub History podcast. Sure, playing the latest episode of Hub History, our favorite stories from Boston history. If you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, please consider writing us a brief review. If you do, drop us a line and we'll send you a Hub History sticker as a token of appreciation. That's all for now. Stay safe out there, listeners. 